Let's pray together. Our Creator, our Saviour God, we, we thank you that your word speaks to us about who you are and all you've done for us supremely in the gospel of Jesus. But Father, sometimes your word talks about things that are hard and asks us to do things that are hard. So we pray, especially this morning, that you might help me to speak your truth with faithfulness and with clarity, with love. We ask that by your spirit that you'd help us to not shut off, you give us open ears, teachable hearts, a real desire to know you more and live your way. So by your spirit, please work in each of us and change us, ultimately to be more like Jesus. Amen. When, you're, when you know that you are loved, it changes how you live. When you know that you're loved by God, it changes the choices that you make, even the way you respond to your enemies. And for Israel about to enter the promised land, uh, they respond differently, they are to respond differently to their enemies than from the way we are to respond today. So what we've just read, there is a difference. And so let me share with you an example of how we should respond to our enemies today. Many of us know the experience of being insulted at work. It might be the snide remark out of your hearing that gets back to you. It could be the colleague who loves to put Christians down. Maybe it's those hurtful words that were said in your hearing when your work is demeaned before others or when due credit is withheld or given to someone else. When we feel that temptation to walk away from the person or to retaliate and insult them back, we can respond in another way. Perhaps like Louise, instead of avoiding that difficult colleague when she arrives at work, Louise makes a beeline for them. She leans in with love to start the day, offering a smile and asking about how they're doing today. Or maybe like Louis, he leans in with love to the one who failed to give him credit for his work by asking if there's anything more that he can do this week. And for Louise and for Louis, it's the way that Christ has loved them that empowers their love for their enemies. Because God's love changes the way we respond to our enemies. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 last week, we heard how God saved his people from slavery in Egypt and how he called them to love God, to love him with all their heart, all their soul, all their strength, and to do that by obeying him. Now in chapter 7, God says through Moses that they need to obey him even when it comes to their enemies, even when it comes to facing their enemies. The chapter begins and ends with the destruction of the Canaanites. But I suggest that it actually has love at the centre, love at the heart, love at the heart of the teaching. And so the basis for what he said in verses 1 to 5 
we actually see is found in verses 6 to 9. And so we're going to start there with our first point, uh, chosen and loved. Verse 6. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Of all the people over the face of the earth, God chose Israel to be his own, to be his treasured possession. They are his chosen ones. This repeats language that was used 40 years earlier at Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19. They've been chosen to be God's people. If you look at Deuteronomy 7 verse 7, he didn't set his affection or love on them because they were so big and strong and deserving, No, for they were the fewest of people. We're told it was because the Lord loved you. God loves them not because of anything they've done, not because of anything in them or about them. God loves them because he loves them. God loves them simply because he chooses to love them. He simply, by his grace, chooses to love them. And secondly, we're also told he loved them to keep the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. He's the God who, in verse 9, keeps his covenant of love. This is the God who keeps his covenant promises, showing loving kindness to a thousand generations. God loved and chose them by his grace to be his people. That's the foundation. And as God's new covenant people, God also says that of us. In Ephesians chapter 1, he, God, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's blessed us in the beloved in Christ. Chosen, loved by grace. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, it talks about the same thing. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, it's repeating the same idea. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a God's special possession. And in Titus chapter 2, as you see on the screen, Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people who are his very own, eager to do what is good. Drawing this together, if you've truly trusted in Jesus, then you are redeemed. That means set free because Jesus died for you, you've been set free from eternal death and destruction. You've been set apart, forgiven of your sin, set apart for God. You've been chosen. You're, you're one of God's chosen ones. Chosen to be saved, chosen to, to be eager to do what is good. But I wonder if we need to hear this this morning. Maybe this is the main point from the passage for you today. For you to hear, for you to know that you are chosen, you are loved by God. 
Do you see that that's what, that's what God's word is saying here? And I ask, do you believe this? Do you believe this? All by grace, by faith in Christ, I am chosen. I'm loved. Are you, Christian, are you hearing this, that you're chosen and loved? Have you taken this to heart? Because if we have, if we will, it, it will change our lives. It changes everything. When we've taken it to heart, when we, then we should remember that we've been saved and set apart not to live for ourselves, but to be eager to do what is good. Or in the words of Deuteronomy chapter 7, as loved people, verse 9, God's people are to love him. Love him and keep his commandments. And that brings us to our next point. Them, then. Them, then. The Israelites, them, at that time then, obeying God meant destroying their enemies to continue to experience God's blessing. Come back with me, please, at chapter 7, verse 1. We're told there when the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess, and notice that he's the one, God's the one who drives out the nations. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you've defeated, the word means killed them, God commands, then you must destroy them totally. Or as the ESV puts it, you must devote them to complete destruction. Show them no mercy, we're told. In verse 16, it says you must destroy all the peoples and do not look on them with pity. Verse 24 is saying you will destroy them. Passages like this, promoting holy war, have certainly been used to promote people's own agendas rather than God's agenda. Since Christ in the last 2,000 years, many have been killed in the name of God. Muslims, Jews, pagan indigenous peoples, communists, even Christians, other Christians. And when we use passages like this to justify that, we are forgetting the specific circumstances of the Exodus. Too many times, love, the love and compassion which ought to mark Christian people have been replaced with aggression and violence. As we saw back in chapter 2, this command to kill everyone, and yes, that includes men, women, children, it was only for a specific people at a specific time and place. It certainly doesn't apply to us in the same way. But many of us, maybe many of you are still asking, okay, Clinton, how can God, though, the God who says, love my enemies, still commands people here, his people, to kill and destroy other people? As we saw in chapter 2, this destruction of these people in the Promised Land, it was a just judgment for their sin. Genesis 15, 16. God is waiting for their sin to get worse and worse. So it's totally deserving. And when we come to chapter 9, we'll read about this, that it's because of their wickedness that this is happening. 
So instead of us thinking that men, women, even kids don't deserve this, maybe we need to change our mindset and think instead, no, no, what we all deserve this. God's a holy and just God and judgment day is coming for everyone and if we are not forgiven in Christ, then we will face death, eternal death, eternal destruction. And so Israel killing their enemies in the promised land, it is deserved and it is done in obedience to God. This wasn't though how Israel was to relate to other nations or always in the future. So as we'll see when we come to chapter 20, for the other nations, not in the promised land, for the other nations around them, they were to offer peace. And women and children, as it says there, could be taken as plunder. But for the nations in the promised land, they were not to be given this option. 20 verse 16, the Israelites were to not leave alive anything that breathes. Back in chapter 7 verse 22, it says that the destruction of the Canaanites, this destruction wouldn't happen all at once. God's not going to allow it to happen all at once or all at one time. And so that means that Israelites would still have Amorites and Canaanites living around them at least for a time, even if they were obeying him. But as well as that, the Lord knows they're not going to obey him fully. He knows what's to come. They will not totally destroy their enemies here. And so he gives them further instructions in verse 3 and following. They are to have no political, social or religious connections with these people. So God says, do not intermarry with them. And we're told why, aren't we? It's because they will turn your children away to serve other gods. So the main reason in chapter 7 for the Canaanites being destroyed is that the Lord loves his people so much that he doesn't want them to be infected by the idolatry of these people. And so Israel is to... As we read, cut down, hack down, smash down, burn down their idols, verse 4. Their idols and the gold and silver on them, verse 25 says at the end, their idols, the gold and silver on that, they will ensnare you. It's like this idolatry is contagious. It's like some Ebola virus that's contagious and dangerous. They must not leave it, they must not lust for it, but detest it and utterly destroy the idols. Because if they don't, it's not going to bode well for them. And a perfect example of this, sadly, in the Old Testament is King Solomon, son of David. In 1 Kings chapter 11, we read here that King Solomon loved many foreign women. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. 
Verse 4, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely. Solomon's relationship with God was affected by who he married. We'll come back to that later to think about how that relates to us. But verse 10, if you look back in our passage, chapter 7, verse 10, those who continue to reject his word, those who worship idols, are actually hating God in their hearts and they will be judged. But if Israel obeys the Lord, the Lord will keep his covenant of love. Verse 13, he will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. The, the idols, the fake gods of the Canaanites, promised their followers fertility, you know, fruitfulness in their agriculture. But what we're seeing here is it's not these idols that are going to give you these things that you long for. The Lord is the one who will truly and abundantly bless you. He will bless you with posterity and prosperity, family and fruitfulness, family and wealth along with health and military success. And just like we saw last week in chapter 6, it's like the curses of Genesis 3 are being rewound. I mean, living poverty-free, sickness-free lives. What a hope. What a promise. And yes, because of their sin, they will not come to experience all these things in their fullness. Time would show that. But with these promises in their mind, knowing that God will keep his promises, the, the Israelites are not to fear their enemies. Verse 18, verse 19. God knows that they are scared of their enemies, but they don't need to be. Instead of failing to trust, instead of being overwhelmed by fear in verse 21, God says, look at what he says, I am with you and I am the great and awesome God. And so the presence of the great God is the cure to their fears. And the presence of the great God is the cure and antidote to our fears too. And the love and the presence of God is to, should motivate them to overcome their enemies. Coming now to our third point, us now. What does this mean for us now? We are not to apply Deuteronomy 7 by killing and destroying people of other nations or other religions, whether they are Palestinians or Muslims. I want to though touch on three types of enemies and what God's word in the New Testament says about how we are to respond to them. Firstly, as it is, says in your outline, sin and idolatry within, that is an enemy that we must kill. So in Romans chapter 8, we're told this by the Apostle Paul, speaking inspired by God, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. 
And Paul uses the same language, doesn't he, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. hope you notice that. Greed, which is idolatry. Something to be put to death. The sin and idolatry in our hearts is the enemy that we today are to put to death. We need to learn from Solomon's bad example because doesn't our world and its idols tempt us to turn from God? I wonder when you think about who you're closest to and who you spend most of your time with, who you love being with, maybe your non-Christian friends, are they tempting you, even just by their lifestyle, are they tempting you to live for possessions, to live for the new purchase, to live for the fleeting pleasures, so that you're always wanting what they have? Or are your non-Christian friends, is your, the culture that we live in, is that tempting you to live for success, for fitness, for family. These can be good things in themselves, but when our love for God, our God who is supremely good, when our love for him is surpassed by our love for those things or for something else, then that thing has become an idol for us. Idolatry is contagious. And so we need to be careful about what we focus on, what we think about, what we desire. Set your mind on things above. Set your mind on Christ and things above, Colossians chapter 3. Are you setting your mind on Christ and things above? Reject the idols that will pull you away from total devotion to God. You can do this by the Spirit, by prayerfully reflecting on God's Word, with the support of brothers and sisters. Have you shared your struggle with anyone? It's hard to go it alone. Watch your heart. Be careful to stay faithful to the Lord. Can I also say that the danger of who you marry still applies today? Not in any sense am I saying that we shouldn't marry people of other nations or cultures. I'm not saying that. It's totally fine to marry people of other nations and cultures, but we shouldn't marry those who are outside of Christ. If you're already married, that is different. But if you are single or dating or considering who to marry, God says only marry a fellow believer. Sadly, too often in my life, in my ministry, I've seen non-believing spouses draw Christians away, their husband or wife, away from total devotion to the Lord. Dating and marrying non-Christians can endanger your faith, and your faithfulness to God. And in every case of every person who's married to a non-Christian, 
they would tell me it's still always hard. Always hard. Don't disobey God and squish your loyalty for him. Don't love someone else or the thought of someone else being with someone else more than him. We need to recover a sense of the incredible privilege it is to be a holy people belonging to God, people who've been graciously chosen by him to be God's treasured people, targets of his love. We need to recover a sense of these things so that we can face the challenges in our age, in our country. We need to remember who we are in Christ and all he's done for us. Because knowing that God loves you and he has chosen you, it's when we know that, when it's gripped our heart, it's then that we will be determined to live God's way and obey his word. So because of who you are, because of all that God's done, slay the sin that would have you. Slay the sin that wants to have you. But the only reason that we can do this is because of the victory that Christ has already won. Our next point, God in Christ has defeated our spiritual enemies. God, remember, deserved the praise for overcoming Israel's enemies. And that's still true for us. Jesus is the one who can bind the strong man, Satan. Jesus didn't give in to the devil's temptations. He defeated his arch enemy, our arch enemy, by his death on the cross. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us this. Christ shared our humanity so that by his death, He might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free us who were held in slavery to a fear of death. Jesus has overcome our spiritual enemies by his life, death, resurrection. Jesus has defeated the power of sin, Satan, death. Remind yourself, Jesus has defeated the power of sin and Satan and death. The Canaanites and their idols were to be set apart for destruction. And we do well to think that that should be us. That's what we deserve. That's what we should have been set apart for destruction. We deserved death and judgment and Christ took that for us. He took that for us. How how marvellous. How wonderful. How life-changing. So rely on Christ's victory. Rejoice and glory in Christ's victory because we receive blessings because of his victory. We're blessed because he has defeated our spiritual enemies. And then thirdly, when it comes to people who are our enemies, we are to love them. We're not to hate them, kill, hurt or ignore our human enemies, but love them. 
And we, we do this as we trust that our God will judge them justly. And when I remember that I'm chosen and loved by God, that I'm among his treasured possession, that can encourage you and I to live his way. Strengthen us to live his way. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus very similarly says in Luke chapter 6, but love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back, then your reward will be great. You'll be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. God is kind, may we even say loving, to the wicked. He gives them food and family, friends, rain, sunshine, even time to repent. And Jesus, Jesus died for his enemies. So in other words, in other words, God has shown love to his enemies. And we, his children, are to be like our Father. We're to love our enemies too. So should we. Brothers and sisters, I, I tell you, this is so hard. And the greater that we've been hurt, the harder it is. But when we're fighting with that friend at school, suffering from that bully, hurting after someone's spiteful comments or the insensitive action of someone, remember Ephesians chapter 6. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So the power to respond God's way is not found in you. We be strong in his power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, I suggest that's today, that you may be able to stand your ground. So when you're fighting with someone or hurting from their words or their actions, remember who your real enemy is. Remember it's Satan who wants you to sin and to selfishly live your own way and reject your Saviour. Remember our real struggle, your real struggle is not against flesh and blood people but against the spiritual forces of evil. Eva was really hurt by the things her friend said. Normally, her first reaction is to hurt and hit back with cutting words. But Eva chooses not to speak straight away. She reminds herself that she is secure in God's love. So she doesn't need to react out of defensiveness. She can do what doesn't come naturally. Eva remembers this scripture that her struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil. 
And Eva didn't give in to sin. She moved away. She prayed for her friend and for God's grace to respond with godliness, with love. Could you do that? Remembering God's love and Christ's victory, relying on Christ's victory, knowing that we're loved, knowing that Christ has beaten our spiritual enemies. We, we remember those things so that we can have the heart, the motivation, the desire to slay the sin in our own lives and find the strength to love our enemies. So what might this practically mean for you? What does God want you to do in response? Maybe your human enemies on the job, or it's another kid at school, or someone in your own family. Maybe if you're being abused, loving them actually means speaking up to the authorities so they are stopped from continuing in their sin. Or could you pray for the person who hurts you at school? Could you speak with kindness to the person at work who consistently puts Christians down? Could you show patience and gentleness to the person in your family even when they feel like your enemy? I'd like to finish with this example of a husband who never stopped seeking his wife even when she felt like an enemy. The wife writes this letter. It's a true story from this book, Love and Respect. She says, We're still together today because for the past few months my husband has shown love regardless of my respect. He loved me when I was not lovable at all. And he held on to our marriage and family when there was absolutely nothing to hold on to. This past October, I asked him to please leave the house. I wanted to be alone. I wanted space. I felt like I just didn't love him anymore. Reluctantly, he left for a couple of weeks. I knew my life and the life of the girls wouldn't, would drastically change as a result of a divorce. I thought about the shared visitation and having to sell our home, but I didn't care. I wanted out. Meanwhile, he prayed. He studied marriage books and made a decision to love me no matter what. The girls were starting to miss him being around, so we decided that he'd return home until further notice. Well, he'd hold my hand every night and pray for me, for our marriage, as I stared up anxiously at the ceiling, waiting for him to finish. He'd leave little notes, a little flower on the bathroom mirror or in my car, so many little things to show that he loved me and he wasn't going to let this marriage go easily. It just irritated me. I thought, can't he understand I just don't love him? I don't want to be with him anymore. Why is he trying so hard? I didn't feel that in love feeling anymore. My needs weren't being met, so I wanted out. I was very selfish and immature. 
I was emotionally going through something that neither of us really understood, but he stayed there and loved me through it, and I eventually broke. No woman in her right mind could go through that much love and commitment. Now I'm very much in love with my husband. I've learned that love is not a feeling, it's a choice, a commitment. We didn't become a statistic because my husband chose to love me no matter what my reaction toward him would be. It's really humbling to look back and to see how loving and patient he was with me and trust me that wasn't easy. And how he, to look back and see how he, only through the strength of Christ, saved our marriage. As a person who's loved by God, loved by Jesus, love him and respond to your enemies God's way. Love God by doing what he says. And friends, I know I need help to do this. I think we all do. So let's pray now and ask for his help. Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, we, when your word convicts us that we have lived as your enemies, we've rejected your rule, we've sought love and satisfaction in other things more than you, we can only but thank you and praise you in response to the way you've saved us by your grace. The grace you've shown us in sending us your only son out of love for this dark world. And Lord, we pray that you would encourage us by the truth that by your grace we are loved, we are chosen for your people, your possession. And that knowing that we're chosen and loved, that that would so fill us with a conviction, a passion to live for you, that we would slay the sin that would have us cut out those idols from our hearts that would tempt us to turn away from you, God. Please, God, by your Spirit, give us grace to follow Jesus, to love our enemies, to love those we find it hard to love. May this happen for the glory of your great and gracious name. Amen.